Hello, I'm Tina Sederholm. Welcome to This Is Not Therapy, a podcast for people who like to find the marvellous in the mundane. Welcome to the ninth episode of This Is Not Therapy, which is called Who Are You? I can't quite believe I've made nine episodes. Well, actually I can. I've been sitting or but sometimes stomping around this room and making them for the last nine months. So I actually do know that I've made nine episodes. And um, it's a lovely feeling to be deep into this series, which is hopefully the first of many series of This Is Not Therapy. It's got to the point in the journey when it's worth looking at the stats. And this week I've been studying the locations of where people are listening from. Um, That's you. That's where you are. I mean, not literally your house. Uh, Obviously, the majority of the people are from the UK. That's no surprise. And and also America, which is very nice. I, I still have friends in America, even though I was a little bit rude about American teeth in episode seven. I've also got listeners in Australia. Uh, shout out to Rowan. I know it's you. She featured in episode six, the one about assumptions, and also New Zealand. Hi, Penny. So uh, those are countries I have friends in. Oh, also Sweden, which I should say a big thanks to my sister, Weezer, and her friends. Yay, shout out to the Gothenburg Massive. But there are also people listening from places I never imagined I would be listened to from. Utrecht, Corfu, Tallinn in Estonia, Gujarat, Liechtenstein, and my favourite of all, Casablanca. Oh, it made my day when I saw Casablanca was listed. I mean, really? They only listened once. And as did some of the other ones, which may mean that they are marketing people listening to my podcast to see if it's the sort of podcast that they can sell a podcast enhancing product to. Oh, yeah, you would not believe what people try to sell you. Podcast mate. I'm not even going to explain that one. I'm just going to leave you with it. So I know where you're listening in from. It doesn't really mean that I know who you are, though, does it? And maybe you are listening from New Zealand and you're not called Penny. But I would love to know who you are. So uh, if you fancy saying a quick hello, you can go to the This Is Not Therapy podcast page on Facebook. There's a link to it in my show notes or just put This Is Not Therapy podcast into the search bar on Facebook. So go there and let me know your name, where you're listening from, and if you like, which was your favourite episode. Anyway, on to this episode called Who Are You? It is, not surprisingly, all about the labels I've tried to give myself as a means of identifications and how that's evolved over the years. And if you have exceptionally good headphones, you may hear the odd snore in the background. They're coming from our new rescue dog, a boxer called Bruce. I got him nicely settled down alongside our other boxer, Nelly, in my office, started recording, and then he began foghorning like it's going out of fashion. I didn't have the heart, or frankly the will, to move him again. So I've left it in as part of life's rich tapestry. So here we go with added snores, episode nine, who are you? 
Let me introduce you to a great friend of mine. This friend is, in fact, a poem. For many years, I would perform this poem at the top of my set. It was my break the ice, set out my stall, introduce myself poem. Sometimes I would walk up to the mic and launch straight into it. Other times I would say, I dedicate this poem to anyone who suspects they may have been a disappointment to their parents. Recorded live at the Cheltenham Poetry Festival Slam 2017. After all the screaming, pushing, tearing, the moment of elation as she emerges, scarlet and squalling while everyone else kisses, embraces, and suddenly stiffens. She is rushed away, and the room holds its breath. The consultant approaches, trying to pull his face out of a grimace and into a kind of smile as he clasps your hand and says, I'm sorry, but you have just given birth to a poet. <laughs> Let me explain, he says. She will not be like other people, ever. She will be the kind of child that you encourage to be herself and then bitterly regret it when she does just that. Is there any history of poetry in the family? Ah, a grandfather who wrote limericks and an aunt who dabbled in haiku. Yes, this is a common mutation. Let's play, it's not a severe strain and she's only occasionally subject to wild fantasies and intermittent depression. <laughs> Rest assured, we will do our utmost to help you manage her creative predilections. You will need to keep her away from fountain pens and notebooks, give her plenty of robust exercise and above all, teach her the value of a proper day's work for poets are an idle lot. <laughs> After all, it is unlikely that she will be any good. <laughs> you could steer her away from a poet's life of debt, insanity and promiscuity by encouraging her to take up an admin role at a university or art gallery. And she complains about there being something missing, suggest Prozac. <laughs> Even homeopathy. <laughs> After her divorce, her midlife crisis will involve slipping into some no-woman's land of dreaming, scheming, and a second career as a life coach <laughs> or creative writing tutor, <laughs> where she will teach other poets to become creative writing tutors. <laughs> Let her. It will act as an anaesthetic. You see, this syndrome is incurable. Whatever you do, whatever treatment we prescribe, she will keep trying to be a poet. <laughs> Remember, you didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> do your best to love her anyway. There is still a small chance that one day she will cause you to be proud. What do you do? It's a simple question, isn't it? Now we're back in social situations, back meeting new people and, well, as for me, back using that question. So what do you do in order to ignite a conversation? 
The silly thing is, it's a question I dread getting because when I'm asked it, I'm going to say, I'm a performance poet. And there are two potential responses. First one, oh, that's exciting, which is nice. But the second kind of response I often get is this slightly strange silence, a held breath, if you will, until the other person says something like, oh, right, yeah, uh, like Pam Ayres. I've just realised that that story doesn't work for people who don't live in the UK and don't know about the British national treasure and writer of comic verse that is Pam Ayres. Just like the person who has asked me if I am similar to Pam Ayres doesn't realise that there is a bit more to poetry than one near octogenarian performing rhyming stories about her teeth. So anyway, then I find myself explaining what a performance poet is. But the thing is that I'm not even just a performance poet. Because in order to be that, I also have to be, oh, marketeer, office manager, gig booker, costume finder, social media guru, self-director, copy editor. (laughs) Oh, you name it. But it gets worse. If the other person, oh, let's call them Bob. If Bob hasn't by now excused himself to go and get another drink, they will almost certainly have this follow-up question. One that is perfectly understandable, if depressing. Do you, um, do you make any money from poetry? Because, you know, a, a job is only as worthwhile as its pay packet. And I tell the truth, which is, well, I do. But not quite enough to support me. So I'm also these other things. I school racehorses. I'm a dog walker. I'm also a poetry newsletter and script editor. I also do a few other things, but by this point, I'm beginning to feel, you know, rude because I've now spent 10 minutes explaining my rather mixed portfolio in an answer to a question which many people can respond to with just one word accountant or similar. But here's the thing these are all things I do. And yes, it will give Bob a few clues about me. But does Bob know me any better? Because it's not who I am. I may say I am a poet because our job is still the primary way we identify ourselves. And even if it's not a job that we're doing at the moment, a role we have maybe like mother, carer or being retired or Even these sorts of roles are still ways that we try to define ourselves. Many, many years ago, instead of asking people in social situations, what do you do? I would ask them the slightly wanky question, what do you love? I'd been inspired by reading an article about how at funerals, the atmosphere shifts when the person giving the eulogy stops listing all the deceased's achievements and starts talking about the things the deceased loved. Whether that was their grandchildren, skydiving, or even the Hornby train sets. I had some interesting conversations off that question. I mean, for some people, what do you love was a bit too intimate too early on. But they kind of missed my point, because I was talking about the sort of thing that you love just for itself. 
not because you gain anything from it and, and not because it loves you back. Because I, I don't think a Hornby train set can love you back. But what I meant was simply being around it, you become a bit more alive. If I was feeling particularly cheeky, I would have this follow up question. And when's the last time you did it? The thing you love. Because so often people would say to me something along the lines of, would you know, I, I love playing the guitar, oh, but I don't have time for it now. It can be surprising and actually deeply saddening when a person realises it might be years since they last did that thing they loved. It's so funny that we still define ourselves by our jobs or roles, even though the job is only part of who we are. And then what happens if you're doing a job you don't like or you're out of work or between jobs? Then how do you define yourself? By something you don't like? I've wrestled with this question of who am I all my life. I was always sure that one day I would have a clean and tidy definition of who I am and what I'm doing here. Almost as if it was something I could tick off my to-do list. But all that changed when I heard the following story. And I didn't hear it once. I heard it from so many sources and in slightly different versions that it actually felt like this story chased me down until I couldn't ever forget it. It's 100 AD and a rabbi called Akiva is walking home to Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. Being a rabbi, Akiva is contemplating verses from Isaiah and as dusk falls he is so lost in thought he misses the turn to Capernaum and keeps walking, contemplating and considering until a voice from above shouts, Who are you? What are you doing here? Akiva has walked smack bang into a Roman military outpost. Now, in first century Israel, this was not a good place to be. The Romans have been occupying Israel for a couple of hundred years and like any powerful oppressor, they are not shy about dispatching anyone who is not where they should be. A sentry leans over the battlements. Who are you? What are you doing here? Akiva touches his beard and being a rabbi answers that question with another question. How much do they pay you to stand up there and ask those questions, says Akiva. The Roman sentry, I imagine, is thinking the 100 AD version of what the actual... Eventually, he replies, five denarii. Akiva says, I will pay you double to stand outside my house and ask me those questions every day. I love that story. I love the idea of my life being a constant reimagining of who I am and what I'm doing here, even in the most mundane of circumstances, like filling the dishwasher or defleeing the dog. And I love that I am not my job or jobs, however much I enjoy them. Hi, Tina again. 
Thanks for listening to This Is Not Therapy. All the books and resources mentioned in the podcast are listed in the show notes, where you can also sign up to my monthly newsletter. If you want to book me for a talk or show, or even buy a book, please go to www.tinasetterhome.com. And finally, don't forget to subscribe! <laughs>